Coming to a retreat, and especially a long one like this, six weeks or three months, is really quite a special time in our lives because it's a chance to disentangle ourselves to some degree from our ordinary worldly concerns. It's really a chance to step back, to quiet down. You know, in the silence and the beauty of these surroundings, it's also possible to find that silence and beauty within ourselves. It's a line from a poem that we often uh, recite on these retreats. It's a line from a poem by Galway Cannell, where he says, Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And it just strikes me that that's really what we're doing. Sometimes it's necessary for us to reteach ourselves our loveliness, or to reteach ourselves that experience of freedom. There's really quite a sense of joy and of ease when we can put things down, even for a moment. It's that mind that lets go, even momentarily, lets go of struggling, lets go of grasping. We settle back into a mind, a heart of relaxed alertness, relaxed awareness, relaxed wakefulness. If we all lived here, simply lived here in this protected environment for the six weeks or three months, and simply remained silent, just spent six weeks or three months in silence and not do anything else, that itself would be a tremendous rejuvenation for us. But we can actually do something much more. We can take this place, which is a physical refuge, a physical sanctuary, and make it a place of a profound and genuine transforming spiritual practice. And then to see how that practice that we do with ourselves actually helps to transform the world. Both in our daily lives and particularly at the beginning of a retreat, there's a movement of the mind that's very important to make. There's a turning of the mind towards the Dharma, towards letting go, towards liberation. It's a turning of the mind in the direction of what's true, in the direction of what's compassionate. And when we do this, when we do this mind turning, it creates a context for us creates a context for us to understand on a deeper level all the many ups and downs and tangles of our experience. There's a teaching precisely about this. It's a teaching which is called the four mind changings or the four reflections 
which turn the mind towards the Dharma. If we reflect on them often in our lives, and also if we reflect on them periodically during the retreat, what happens is that this, these mind-turning reflections, mind-changing reflections, it's as if they keep us on the glide path of awakening. You know, when a plane comes into land, it's signed a glide path, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're on the glide path of awakening. So in the vast cosmology of the Buddha's teaching, of his understanding, of his realization, he emphasized again and again the very great preciousness of this human birth. And this is the first mind-turning, mind-changing reflection Now, in this cosmology, which apparently he and many others have seen directly in their own experience, there's a description, an amazingly vast description, you know, of infinite world systems. And within each of those world systems, there are 31 planes of existence. You know, and the countless lives that we all undergo And the Buddha was pointing out how rare and precious it is to attain a human birth. Why is it rare and precious? It's precious because it's said to be like arriving at a great island of treasure where every happiness is available. So this is our opportunity as human beings, especially as we come in contact with the Dharma. That is, we come in contact with the understanding of what the causes of happiness are. Because it's this understanding which is possible so preeminently in this human birth that makes possible every kind of happiness for us. It's the place where all good things can be attained, can be realized. So it's quite amazing. We can also understand the meaning of precious human birth not only in terms of the cosmology and the actual birth as human beings, which is rare and precious, but also within one lifetime, just within the circumstances of our lives. The most basic principle of Buddha Dhamma in many aspects and on many levels, the basic principle is that everything arises out of the appropriate causes or conditions. If the conditions are there for something to happen, then that experience arises. And if the conditions are not there, it doesn't. Nothing arises independent of conditions. And these conditions are always changing. They're unstable, they're unreliable. Now just if you reflect, 
upon the many places in the world and perhaps among the people you know where people are living ordinary, peaceful, stable lives, things are going along, and then in a day, in a week, something happens and their entire life is transformed. Something that's particularly symbolic of this for me is, I forget the year where the Winter Games were in Sarajevo, the Winter Olympic Games. (laughs) It's a beautiful city. hosting the Winter Olympics. And a couple of years later, such massive destruction and war and violence. And I just think of those people who, people just like us living their lives in this, you know, modern Western city where we think these kinds of things don't happen. And yet conditions change and all of their lives are turned completely upside down. It can happen because of conditions like that, of warfare. It can happen because of natural disaster. It can happen because of disease. You know, we're just going along in our lives. And in a moment, conditions can change. It's very helpful to remember that we are not exempt from this truth of change. We tend to think this only happens to other people. But that's not seeing what's true. So what is amazing now for all of us is that we have the leisure, we have the strength, we have the resources, we have the opportunity to be doing this. It's exceedingly rare and precious. And so can we contemplate, can we reflect on all the conditions which makes this possible for us, this opportunity to practice, the opportunity to awaken, and can we see it as a very great blessing in our lives? It's this great gift. It's not taking these conditions for granted and assuming that because they're here now, they will always be there. It comes out of conditions. Even among beings who are born as humans, just think of how few ever have the opportunity to hear teachings about awakening, about liberation. It's not on the nightly news. <laughs> you know, it's rare. Even, even once we have attained this precious human birth, it's rare to hear teachings which are about liberating the mind, you know, liberating the heart. And even among those who hear the Dharma of liberation, how few are actually interested in practice. And of those who are interested in practice, how few actually do it, make that step from a kind of intellectual interest or appreciation to actually putting the teachings in practice. Very, very few. And especially to do it with the kind of commitment 
that brings us all here together. I'm sure that for most of you, or for many of you, your friends and family probably think you're a little, <laughs> a little crazy. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go someplace for six weeks, for three months. I'm going to sit in silence. I'm not going to look at anybody. <laughs> I'm going to sit and walk. It's very rare. So when we, we reflect on this preciousness of the human birth and the preciousness of our present circumstances, you know, which brings us all here and reflect on all the conditions within us that makes it possible, it imparts a real sense of ardency, of interest, an inner fire, a sense of spiritual urgency. It's as if this is our time. This is the time that has been given to us for practice, for awakening. This reflection, both now at the beginning of the retreat and throughout the retreat from time to time, really enlarges our perspective so that as we may be struggling you know, with all the many ups and downs and difficulties that happen in practice, this is not an easy undertaking. But when we, we reflect back on the preciousness of our human birth, the preciousness of these conditions coming together, it just provides a much bigger context for our understanding what it is that we're doing. You know, and it, it brings about a lot of self-respect, a lot of metta for ourselves and for all others here. The Bodhisattva on the night of his enlightenment, as it said, was he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. And even he, after all those lifetimes... devoted to this path of awakening, said he was assailed by doubts. And Mara, in the form of of doubt, arose in his mind. And the famous gesture that he made, he touched the earth. He called upon Mother Earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting there, based on all of those lifetimes of practice. We need to make the connection between the bodhisattva under the tree and ourselves sitting in this room. Because each one of us has created the conditions through our own past actions, our own past wholesome actions, our own paramis. We have created these conditions for ourselves. To reflect on that really establishes us or grounds us. It's as if we ourselves are touching the earth to bear witness to our right to be sitting here. So this reflection on our precious human birth and the precious conditions which make our practice possible now, this is the first mind-turning, mind-changing, the reflection which turns the mind towards the Dharma, away from worldly concerns.
The second mind-changing is the reflection on impermanence. And doing it in a way that moves it from an intellectual understanding, which we all have. We all know that things are changing. But we have to reflect on it in such a way that it makes it a place of living wisdom within ourselves. Are we living from that place of understanding impermanence? Now, in one sense, the whole of meditation practice comes out of this wisdom. This reflection on impermanence is basic. That wisdom is basic to everything we're doing. Because when we truly and deeply and intuitively and directly are experiencing the momentariness, the impermanence of things, then the heart and the mind relax. We stop trying to hold on so much in this flow of changing experience. And as we relax, as we let go, we come to a place of peace. It's letting go of grasping, And to the degree that we can let go of grasping at anything, we let go of suffering. What's so remarkable to me about the teachings is that when we talk about them, they're so obvious. (laughs) They're so simple. And they're so incredibly difficult to do. You know, because of the strong, strong, deeply ingrained habits of our conditioning. Let go of grasping. End of suffering. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) It's very simple to understand. It was this reflection on impermanence that really motivated the Bodhisattva on his quest of awakening, of enlightenment. You know, for realizing that which is undying, unchanging. He said, why should I, who am subject to change, also keep seeking those things which are subject to change? Yet when we look in our lives, we see that this is is exactly what we're doing over and over and over again. We're living our lives again and again seeking something else which is simply going to change and disappear. Why do we keep doing this? We're leaning forward, we're looking forward, we're anticipating the next hit of experience. We see it on on all levels of our lives. It may be the next event that we're we're looking forward to. The next vacation, the next pleasure. And even here on retreat, where the next pleasure (laughs) may seem very far off, we can be sitting just 
anticipating the next breath. As if somehow something in the process itself is going to resolve everything. And we forget that what we're practicing is non-clinging. We're not practicing for another experience. Why? Because any experience which arises is also just going to pass away. Everything that arises within our experience, within the mind, within the body, within the heart, it's all simply part of this passing show of empty phenomena. Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher, he had a wonderful line. He said very often, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing? Where is the end of tasting? Where is the end of feeling? It just goes on and on and on and on and on. So why do we keep seeking that which in its nature is impermanent, is going to change? Very freeing insight comes as we reflect on this, as we reflect on the impermanence of all arisings, of all conditions, on an increasingly momentary way, so that we're deconditioned and grasping in a moment-to-moment, in our moment-to-moment experience. But it's also reflecting on this truth of impermanence in ways that we already know from our lives. Just a few very obvious Examples of this, that the end of birth is death. You know, as time goes on, our lives are simply getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. It was expressed in one, one little phrase, life only runs out. <laughs> sort of that's what's happening, life is running out. Do we realize this truth? Do we actually let it in? And then if we do let it in, what's our response to it? Does it frighten us? You know, this contemplation that life simply ends in death and it's, it's just running out to that end? Does it frighten us? Does it inspire us? The Buddha is always so straightforward and direct about what is true. Now this is, it's not something morbid, it's not something frightening, it's just a statement of how things are, that our life is impermanent on this level. Can we see that? Can we open to it? Can we free ourselves from grasping? The end of accumulation is dispersion. Now so often we spend our lives in a frenzy of accumulation, and perhaps not a frenzy, but a slow measured, stately accumulation. <laughs> but where does it all end? You know, why devote our lives to this? It's not that there's anything wrong in having things, but if this becomes, this becomes the main activity of our lives, for what? Ajahn Shah had 
you know, the famous Thai meditation uh, master. He had one of the most wonderful expressions of this. In one, in one situation, he held up a cup and he said, you should treat this cup as if it's already broken. So then you use it, you take care of it, but when it breaks, there's no problem. Because you're relating to it already from that place of wisdom. The end of birth is death. The end of accumulation is dispersion. The end of meeting is separation. How often do we really reflect on this in our lives? Do we make this the place of wisdom? in how we relate. Probably not that often. One of the images used to describe this of how the end of all meeting, the end of all coming together is separation. It's the image used is of people mingling and intermingling in a dream. But how often do we get so solidly entangled in our relationships? You know, in our interpersonal relationships, they at times can get so sticky because we forget this. We lose the perspective. We lose sight of this basic truth of impermanence. If we could hold that wisdom, the dance we do with each other would be much lighter, much easier. So this reflection, deep reflection and investigation of impermanence in a very profound way reorients our understanding, reorients our life towards freedom, towards letting go. You know, and one of the one of the very beautiful things about the retreat is we can pay careful attention to those moments of non-grasping in the mind. We pay attention to those moments when the mind lets go. And we get a taste of the real possibility of freedom. We really can assess then what is of true value in our lives. Is it simply another experience which is going to pass away? Or is that that state, that space, that understanding of mind in which there's no clinging. We can taste this for ourselves and that's the great gift of the retreat. The precious human birth, the reflection on impermanence. The third reflection or consideration that turns the mind towards the Dharma, towards the truth towards what is freeing is that everything we do, that all our actions have consequences. In Buddhism, this is, this is known as or called the law of karma. That actions, that the actions we do don't happen in a vacuum. That each action has a consequence, has a result. We may not always have the wisdom or clarity to see the results clearly. 
you know, or correctly. Or maybe we only have a partial vision of the consequences of our actions. But in a very deep place, whether we acknowledge it or articulate it or not, we are all very much connected with this understanding of the law of karma. Because it's the common it's the common understanding that motivates us all to act. We act because we think there's going to be some result that comes from our actions. We may be mistaken in our assessment of what's going to come, but that's the basic force that moves us to act. We think, yeah, if I do this, there'll be some kind of worldly gain or pleasure. If we do this, there'll be some kind of spiritual understanding. So we all realize this. We all realize that actions bring results or have consequences. But the Buddha went one very essential step further than this. And herein lies the heart of the matter. He saw that what most completely determines the result of the action is the motivation behind the action. It's not the act itself, but the motive behind it, which is of such consequence. And every possibility of happiness and our whole spiritual journey really rests on this understanding. There's a Tibetan saying which, which expresses it, sums this up so well. It says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Extremely uh, incisive point. And we can see, we know how this works in the world. You know, the difference between the results of actions which are based on greed or generosity or love or envy or jealousy, depending on the motive, even if the action happened to be the same, the result for ourselves and for others, very different. You know, think back perhaps sometime to a moment of generosity where it was really coming from a very loving open space and at another time when we may have given something with some ulterior motive in mind. Very different, a completely different experience. We can't fool our hearts. The results come from the motive that's behind the action. looking more clearly and more deeply, more systematically at our own motivation really opens up the space for us to begin to make wise choices in our lives. People come here for, for many different motivations. Probably if we went around the room and say, you know, why did you come? There'd probably be a hundred different reasons. 
Sometimes people come just really to cool out. Their lives are hectic and involved. And it's literally to take a breath, you know, from the busyness and entanglement of one's life. Maybe some people come to sort out sort of emotional or psychological entanglements. Maybe some people come with a real aspiration for enlightenment, for awakening. Something that has been very transformative of my practice you know, in recent years is seeing that all of these individual motivations, whatever they may be, can be held in the larger understanding that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. Whatever our particular individual reasons are for coming to practice, we can hold them all in this understanding that we're not practicing just for ourselves. There's a practice and a nurturance of the motivation that we're practicing in order to benefit all beings. In Pali or Sanskrit, this motivation is called bodhicitta. Literally, bodhi means wisdom or awakened state and jitta means heart or mind. So literally it means the awakened heart, the awakened mind. In terms of our immediate experience, a very simple translation of bodhicitta is the kind heart. Can we practice with a kind heart for ourselves and for others? I'd like to read you something from the Dalai Lama who as most of you know is this very wonderful being and uh, beside being very wonderful and kind and compassionate and all that he's also really cute <laughs> in just his manner he's so childlike you know and, and also in the way he sees himself speaking of my own experience I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the positive mind, which I try to explain to others, and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So one question, one obvious question arises with regard to this. Bodhicitta, which is the kind heart. It's that heart which has the aspiration to practice for the benefit of all. So the question which might well arise, how does sitting here 
feeling our breath, lifting, moving, placing, practicing mindfulness, how does that help anybody else? How can we hold our practice within this motivation of bodhicitta? It happens in several ways. Given the great importance of motivation in terms of results of our actions, it becomes essential that we actually know what our motivations are. And this is not an easy matter. You know, our motives are often mixed, confused, unconscious. In fact, it's probably rare that we are really connected deeply and honestly and truthfully with the motives behind our actions. It needs a tremendous interest and willingness and courage and honesty just to see, to see what's really there. It's essential because if we don't, if we don't make this effort, if we don't have this interest, what happens is that we simply act out all the habits of our conditioning. Literally, we're acting out. You know, and there's no possibility of seeing the motive and purifying it. For a very long time in my practice, I would be very... Um, I'd be embarrassed by, I would be aversive to, uh, judgmental about... Uh, all the defilements as they come up in my mind, as I saw all those kalesas, you know, of fear or pride or envy or jealousy or anger or whatever it was, as these things came up and I saw them, or when, as happened quite frequently, different of my teachers would point them out to me, <laughs> I would feel terrible. And I'd feel terrible about myself, I would be judging myself, I would feel judged. But a real change happened somewhere along the way. And now, for the most part, when I see a defilement in my mind, I am really happy. And I'm happy because I would much rather see it than not see it. And so when I see something come up, especially if it's one that's really terrible, (laughs) there's a kind of inner smile that happens. You know, in the Buddhist texts, often there's, there's a line that, that recurs uh, when the Buddha is, uh, when Mara is coming you know, to confront the Buddha, and the Buddha said, Oh, Mara, I see you. you know, and that phrase, I see you, that's a very potent phrase. So I encourage this attitude. You know, if a defilement or two should happen to arise, <laughs> Take delight in the fact that you're seeing it. Because if you don't see it, if you don't become aware of it, then it's simply acting it out unconsciously, unmindfully. So there's a real possibility of opening, of freeing ourselves. This was, uh, this kind of change of attitude was expressed in something I read in some Dharma book. 
Just the example really struck me. It cast it in very sharp outline. It, it posed the question uh, of offering us two choices and which one we would prefer. That is, coming down to breakfast one morning and finding on the table a check for $10 million. That's the first choice. The second choice is coming down for breakfast and finding your worst enemy who points out all your faults. <laughs> Which one would you prefer? <laughs> and it was really interesting for me to watch my mind in that one. <laughs> it's hard to get to that place. <laughs> but really the person pointing out all our faults is of greater value. It's worth, it's worth letting that one in because it's really about our willingness to see ourselves truthfully. You know, is that our priority? Or do we simply want to continue living in whatever self-delusions are there? Okay, so that it's in this, it's in this way that our practice here is actually in the service of bodhicitta. We need to see our motives because it's only when we see them and then can make some wise choices that we truly can act for the benefit of all others. Our practice is also in the service of bodhicitta when we understand that two people stuck up to their necks in mud, very hard for one to be able to help the other, even with the strong intention to do so. But if one person is somewhat uh, on solid land, then it's easy. Then there's actually the means to help the other person. One of the most wonderful aspects of the Dharma and our continuing practice is the dawning realization that the more we understand ourselves, the more we understand everyone else. Because our stories are different. You know, we have different backgrounds, different education, different parents and schooling and everything. But the nature of the mind-body is exactly the same. The nature of suffering, the nature of grasping, the nature of letting go, the nature of awareness, this is the same in all of us. And so as we continue in our practice and understand ourselves more and more completely, the natural consequence of that is that we understand everyone else more and more completely. And this is the basis of a very essential interconnectedness. There's a very... Uh, important shift in our spiritual journey. When we go from the understanding that our practice will inevitably help other people, there's no way that it cannot. As we become more peaceful, more loving, more generous, more kind, inevitably our practice helps other people. But when we go from that understanding
to making the welfare of all beings the motivation for our practice. It's like taking it from the result end and putting it right at the beginning. When we cultivate this as a motivation, this is why we're doing it. We're practicing in order to benefit all others. That's, that's a very great opening for us in our understanding of our practice and our lives. This, this attitude of bodhicitta, uh, there's a wonderful text you know, in the Buddhist tradition. It's called The Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shantideva. And it was written, I don't know, in the 7th or 8th century. There's one uh, little section. It's called The Seven Branch Prayer. And it's just, it's just a very uh, beautiful expression of this aspiration. Remember, it was written 7th or 8th century India, rural India, so some of the images you know, come out of that time. But they point to something very deep within us. He wrote, as this expression of bodhicitta, may I be a guard for those who are protectorless and a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be as an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed, and for all who need a servant, may I be a servant. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles, and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, May I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. That's quite an aspiration. I think it's important to remember, like the Dalai Lama indicated when he said, I can't pretend to really practice bodhicitta. I think we have to uh, it's almost casting it in terms of may I have the aspiration to have the aspiration to benefit all you know, is to take a very humble stance with this because this is huge, this is vast. The Buddha is the full embodiment of it. But can we just nourish or nurture in very small ways you know, this little seed? You know, this aspiration to have the aspiration to benefit all beings. We can do it, you know, in some very simple ways at the beginning of each sitting. 
And this is, you know, just a suggestion, if you like, and you can certainly find your own words to express it. This is just an example. Now, at the beginning of each sitting, we might reflect for a moment, may I awaken for the benefit of all. And so it really sets, it waters that seed. At the end of the practice, at the end of a sitting or the end of the day, we can dedicate the merit. You know, may my practice be dedicated to the awakening of all beings. This is very helpful because it really it enlarges the scope of what we're doing. It enlarges our understanding of what we're doing. So this is the third reflection that turns the mind towards the Dharma. is the precious human birth, reflection on impermanence, reflection on the law of karma and the importance of motivation. And within that, the touching, you know, the connecting with the aspiration of bodhicitta. And the fourth reflection which turns the mind towards the Dharma is that consideration or reflecting on what are called the inherent defects of samsara. What does samsara mean? That's a Pali and Sanskrit word. It literally means perpetual wandering. And it means this wandering through the endless cycles of existence. It's like a bee which is trapped in a jar. You know, and the bee can fly to the top of the jar or to the bottom of the jar, but it's still imprisoned in that jar. It's still trapped. According to the Buddhist teachings, we all cycle through all the realms of existence, from the highest Brahma and Deva worlds to the worlds of suffering and back through the human world. And we're just cycling around again and again, driven on by the laws of karma. And until we emerge from this dream of ignorance, of not knowing, then we stay trapped you know, in this cycle of repeated existence, repeated conditioned existence. But we don't have to think of this necessarily or only in these vast scales you know, of life to life in many realms. We can see it very clearly within one lifetime, within one day, within one hour when we watch our minds. How many different mind worlds have you lived in today? How many different mind worlds were created and then inhabited for shorter or longer time periods? You might have been at home with your family for some time. You might have been at situations at work where you've just come from. You might have been in plans for the future. You might have been in thoughts about the retreat, endless, endless, endless proliferation of mind worlds. We're actually taking rebirth every time we get lost. You know, we feel happy, we feel sad, we feel depressed, we feel angry, we feel excited, we feel joyful, we feel upset. And it's all just this play of the mind. But you know, I mean, this, is, this is the great revealing uh, gift of the retreat. 
because we see again and again, we, we face so directly and so clearly the truth of our experience of getting lost and entangled again and again and again and again in these mind-created fantasies. This, this is samsaric existence happening right now and all the time. I particularly enjoy the walking meditation for this, you know, because the contrast between simply being in the body, taking a step, being grounded, being connected to the earth, being present, being right here, the contrast between the simplicity of that and then whatever world you know we live in is so striking. And it just take a step and there we are and we're really present. And somehow ten steps down the path, we're back again. Where were we? We've taken birth someplace. Notice carefully what it's like in those moments when you awaken from a long thought form. You know, when you awaken from a particular rebirth. Really notice and delight in that moment of wakefulness because that recognition of the state of awareness, the nature of awareness, is tremendously liberating. It's it's like that moment of coming out of a movie theater, you know, where we've been so engrossed in the story and the movie and a whole roller coaster of emotion, and then we step out of the theater and there's a little reality, the shift. Oh yeah, that was just a movie. One Tibetan Geshe expressed it really well. He said, do not rule over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. <laughs> do not rule, do not become king or queen over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. The moment of awakening from one of those imaginary kingdoms is a very powerful moment. And the great uh, surprise, the happy surprise of Dharma practice is that for as many times as you get lost, exactly that many times you awaken. I would give emphasis to the latter. (laughs) It really helps. It helps keep the mind from getting judgmental and therefore just getting lost again. You know, take the light and oh, awake again, and really recognize what's that like, what that's like. So when we reflect on these four mind changings, the precious human birth, the truth of impermanence of all conditions in our lives the law of karma and the importance of motivation and the possibility of nurturing bodhicitta and the basic unsatisfactoriness of samsaric conditioning. These four reflections turns our mind, turns our lives 
towards the Dharma, towards letting go, towards freedom. And all of this can be held in our aspiration to be of benefit to all beings. It's not easy. This is not an easy task. But the path is clear. Uh, And so we practice step by step. Just close with uh, the very last line of uh, Spinoza's great, great philosophical masterpiece, The Ethics. Uh, He closed this text, which in some way was my first, although I didn't know it at the time, when I was studying in in college, it was really my first glimpse of Dharma possibilities. It's, um, so he ends this text by saying, all noble things are as difficult as they are rare. And that's so, so characteristic of our Dharma practice. It's difficult, it's rare, and it's the most precious thing we can do. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.